0: how we doing? Good! Thank you. (laughs) My name is Frank and I'm one of the pastors. I'm just really glad you're here and uh, I just want to let you know that uh, if you're new or you're just checking us out that uh, uh, I hope this is a safe place. It's, It's somewhere that we've all come and we've had our lives impacted by this incredible Jesus and we don't really fully understand it so we keep coming back every week to just try to experience Him more. And the more we experience Him, the more we change. The more we change, the more we want to experience Him. So we keep coming back and we worship Him and we learn about Him. And and in a weird way, just by doing those things, we are transformed internally. And it's not something that we necessarily choose to do. It just happens inside of us. It's just part of what happens. And we've been in this series about Revelation and End Times. And um, it's been an incredible series. We're now to Revelation chapter 7. We've learned that this book makes sense if you understand the first 65 books of the Bible, that it's a, th- it's a common story from beginning to end, and all these threads, all these storylines compete and end up in Revelation coming to completion. And we've learned that there's only one Revelation, and that's Jesus Christ, that this whole story is all about Jesus Christ. Now, when I read Revelation 7, It always reminds me of the Brad Boyer Swimming School. It does. When I was eight years old, I, my mom decided that her kids needed to be in competitive swimming, right? It's probably a big deal back then. Anyway, I went to the Brad Boyer Swimming Academy at age eight, seven or eight. And turns out I was pretty good. And so I was like the youngest person to receive the Brad Boyer seal. And Brad Boyer himself, okay, I know you don't know who he is. He's probably like just some guy. Okay, anyway, Brad Boyer himself gave me the seal. And the seal allowed me to go to the Sprague swimming gymnasium thing. I could go whenever I wanted. I could go in the deep end, even if there wasn't a lifeguard there. I had access to the pool when other kids didn't. And I had the seal of Brad Boyer on my Speedo. Yeah. And... (laughs) It allowed me to do things other kids couldn't do so I would go into the, the locker room and I just wait for other big kids to show up and then I'd walk by them and I'd go excuse me I need to go out to the pool they say, hey pools closed I'd go Brad boy a seal right here baby I'm going to the pool I got to warm up right and that seal allowed me to go all kinds of places when you checked in you had you had a little seal you showed them and you, here it is I mean they come right in Nobody messed with you, the lifeguards didn't mess with you, you could do whatever you wanted to do. It was incredible. You could even go off the high diving board, which back then, before insurance company, they were actually high. And so it gave you free access. That seal meant everything. If you had that seal on in that building, you were the man, even if you were a little boy. And I'll never forget that feeling of knowing that I walked into a place with the Brad Boyer seal of approval on me. Now, we're going to learn that seals are important, but in order to do that, I need to take you through the history of the Jewish nation. And I know you're thinking, oh man, this is going to be brutal. It's okay, we're going to get through it and it's not that hard. For reasons not known to us, God decided that he was going to bless a man named Abraham. And he told Abraham that he was going to bless him and his descendants, and that those descendants and he would have a unique relationship together. And they would become known, his kids were Abraham, and then Isaac, and then Jacob, and eventually there were twelve kids that were known as the tribes of Israel. And God not only had a special relationship with Jewish people, but He also had a unilateral, unconditional covenant with them. And let's go back for a minute and just look at what God promised Abraham. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. This is God going to Abram and saying, look, these things are going to happen. Not because of you, but because of me. It's a unilateral, unconditional contract. No matter what you do, no matter whether you think you should or not, I'm God, I'm doing these things through you and to you, and I'm just letting you know in advance what's going to happen. The Lord said to Abram, after lot separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, north, south, east, and west, for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can see the dust, can count the dust of the earth, your offspring can also be counted. Arise, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. In Genesis 15, then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain, your offspring will be a sojourner in a land that's not theirs. And they will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. What he's saying is, look, I'm going to give you this land. But before you get this land, your people are going to go somewhere else. And they're going to be enslaved for 400 years. Okay. And then I'm going to bring them back to this land that I've given to you. Well, that's exactly what happens in Egypt. They go to Egypt. They become slaves. And guess what? At 400 years, here comes Moses. And they head back towards the promised land. And he says... But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You'll be buried in a good old age. And they will come back here in the fourth generation. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, and the Ripham. The Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, the Jebusites, and every other ite that was in the Promised Land at that time. So God made a unilateral, unconditional promise to Abram. It's called the Abrahamic Covenant. It's unilateral. It's God doing it. It had nothing to do with Abraham. He wasn't worthy of it. He didn't earn it. He didn't keep earning it. It was God saying, I'm going to bless you, and you can do nothing about it. Okay. God promised that it would happen no matter what the Jewish people do, no matter whether they follow him or not, whether they rebel or not, he's still going to carry out his promise because he's God and his word is solid. And the repetitive story of the Jewish people, if you want to summarize the Old Testament, it's God makes them a promise. They say they'll worship him forever. Then they usually do something like intermarry with other people who bring in false gods. And then God punishes them. And then they say, oh, I'm so sorry. I won't do that again. And he restores his relationship with them. And they just keep repeating that over and over and over with all the different people in the promised land that they weren't supposed to be interacting with. And then eventually, God starts sending prophets to them, saying, look, you're supposed to be following me. What are you doing? Here's what the Lord says. And then they would either stone, kill the prophet, leave him alone, ignore him, whatever. But the prophet's words often fell on deaf ears. But every time God saved a remnant, every time that that people turned away from God, there was always somebody or a group of somebodies who followed God. At one point it was one person, and the Bible says, but Noah walked with God. Everybody else had turned away, but Noah walked with God. And throughout the Jewish story, there's always a group of people that hold on to what God says no matter what everybody else does. And it's through those people that God keeps His promise to Abram and Abraham. Later would come King David. And God would once again do an unconditional unilateral covenant with David called the, guess what, Davidic covenant. First Chronicles 17, when your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom he will build a house for me and I will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father, he shall be to me a son. I will not take my steadfast love from him as I took it from him who was before you, but I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever and his throne will be established forever. Through David one would come who would live forever and be the king forever, the promised Messiah." Had nothing to do with David. In fact, David worked really hard to try to make that not happen. He was doing things he shouldn't be doing. But God's promise is God's promise. So God made these covenants and they are unilateral and they are unconditional to Abraham, to David, and by the way to us. But even though God made promises to the Jewish people their sins still had to be punished. In other words, just because he promised them that he would do what he was going to do didn't mean they could go sin and he would just ignore it or not look at it or walk away from it. They had to suffer the consequence of chasing after false gods. And so part of the Jewish story is that they're always under some kind of persecution, some kind of activity because of their rebellion against God. And when they entered the Promised Land, God told them very specifically, don't interact with anybody here. In fact, destroy everybody here. They are going to taint the Jewish line. They are going to have you compete for false gods. You are to go in and take the land I give you, and you are to take it completely. The problem is, they didn't do that. They went in and took everybody's stuff, but some of the people, they just decided, well, I'll just make you my slave. I won't destroy you like God said. I'll just leave you here. Or maybe we'll just take the land up to the border. They looked at other nations after a while and they said, Wow, all the other nations have kings. We need a king. God said, I am your king. You don't need a king. We want a king. We need a king. So they selected a guy named Saul. And Saul was a horrible choice as a king. He looked great on the outside, but even when they selected him, he was hiding from everybody because he didn't want to lead. And the story of the Old Testament is Saul was a disaster as a king. So, God said, okay guys, you messed up, let me pick my king. And he picks King David. And King David was a man after God's heart, the Bible tells us. He was a king who brought in prosperity and peace throughout the Jewish nation. He had his own personal issues, he had his own moral failures, he had all kinds of issues, but he also had a heart for God. And he brought prosperity and peace to the Jewish nation. And he was a foreshadowing of one who would come through his line who would also be a king who would establish the Jewish nation in peace, the Messiah. Unfortunately, David's son, although he started off well, he decided he wanted to marry Pharaoh's daughter, which obviously was not something God wanted him to do. And so we see a slow moral decline as he grows up and as he does other things as king. Chases after false gods. So, from that point on, the kingdom is divided, north and south, okay? They split north and south. The north kingdom consists of ten tribes of the twelve. It's called Israel. It's in the pink up there. The southern kingdom is called Judah, and it consists of two tribes, but primarily the tribe of, guess what, Judah, okay? Jerusalem is in Judah. Those who lived in the north... not allowed anymore to come down to Jerusalem to the temple, so they established their own temple in Samaria. They interbred with the people of Samaria, and that's why when the Samaritan woman meets Jesus, uh, they're classified as half-breeds. They're Jewish people who intermarried who go to a false temple, okay? It's the north and the south thing. And so what happens is they're in Samaria, they're considered half-breeds, and their disobedience to God was enormous. God told them not to do what they were doing. They did it anyway. So in the year 722 B.C., God sent the Assyrians in to basically conquer the north and wipe out the ten tribes that were in the north. Okay? It's their punishment for not following God. Now here's what happens. The Assyrians don't wipe out people. What they do is they take the people of a conquered land and instead of making them slaves they send them throughout their empire and they just let them kind of mix in because they know as long as they're not united together they'll have no impact. So they took all of these Jewish people who are in the 10 tribes and they sent them out into their kingdom which is up into Europe and Eastern what now is Eastern Russia and some other places. And so these 10 tribes that were in Israel now have been dispersed throughout the world and that's the last time we know where they are. Okay? That was their punishment. Now, God knows who they are. Obviously, God knows who those ten tribes are. He knows where they are. He knows what their descendants are. But from a historical standpoint, we lost the ten tribes of Israel when the Assyrians sort of dispersed them around the world. In the south, they, too, stopped following God in Judah. And they turned away from God as well. And because of that, God said, okay, I'm going to let the Babylonians come in and they're going to wipe out Judah and they're going to wipe out Jerusalem. And the Babylonians came in and normally they kill everybody, but they decided that they were going to take the best and the brightest back to Babylon. And the best and the brightest turned out to be Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego and all those people that we read about who are exiled to Babylon. Okay, so the south has been destroyed, the north has been taken over, there is no more Jewish nation, and these people are now exiles in Babylon. Okay, now eventually, God's gonna allow this remnant that's in Babylon to come back to Jerusalem and rebuild. He's gonna arrange it to where they can come back and restart the kingdom. Okay, so in Babylon, they're always praying that God would give them an opportunity to come back. Well, under the leadership of Nehemiah that actually happens. The king changes, uh, the Babylonians are replaced by the Persians, the king of Persia says, yeah, go back, build your thing, here's, the thing. here's a thing. Here, here's some wood, go, go build what you need to build. And Nehemiah goes back and he begins to rebuild Jerusalem. And he begins to rebuild the temple. This is the event that we talked about last week that starts the 70-week clock, right? When your people return to Jerusalem to build the temple, the 77s, the 490 years that we talked about, start ticking, right? And we know that that scripture tells us that through Judah, we would eventually get the Davidic line, which would bring us the Messiah. And the scriptures told us that that Messiah would arrive at the end of 69 sevens. Okay, 483 years from the time that they go back to build Jerusalem until the Messiah would walk into the temple in Jerusalem. Okay, we talked about it last week. So all the people who are Jewish that we know as Jewish are actually descendants of the tribe of Judah, the southern kingdom. The northern tribe, we really don't know where they went. They're not known to us. So the 70-week prophecy that we talked about last week there'd be 69 sevens from the edict to build the temple until the Messiah would arrive at Passover that year because the edict went out at Passover 483 years later. Well, 483 years later to the day, Jesus ascends up to Jerusalem as the Messiah riding on a donkey. They're waiting with palm leaves because they expect the Messiah to come that day. And he goes to the temple as the Lamb of God and they shout Hosanna Hosanna, which means they're recognizing the Messiah is coming today to the temple Just like Daniel said it would happen. We've been waiting and it's happening So he goes to the temple Unfortunately the Jewish people instead of accepting him reject him Okay, remember that the lamb the Passover lamb presents itself to the priests at the temple and they watch it for six or seven days Five days. And then, if the lamb is pure, if the lamb is worthy of sacrifice, the the priests give their approval, and that lamb becomes the sacrificial lamb for that family. So, during the time that the lambs are being examined in Jerusalem, Jesus is being examined as the Lamb of God. And he's doing things like turning over tables, yelling at the Pharisees, saying the rocks will cry out. So, they reject him as the Messiah. Okay? And as a result, they reject him and he becomes their crucified lamb. In Acts chapter 13, brothers, son of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent a message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. In other words, they should have known what the prophet Daniel said. They should have recognized him as the Messiah. He was fulfilling prophecy, but instead they killed him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had arrived and had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, which are now his witnesses to the people. The next Sabbath, the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy, and they began to contradict what was spoken by Paul reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It is necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, the Jewish people, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are now turning to the Gentiles." For the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the earth. So, what's happened is the Messiah showed up on exactly the day He was supposed to show up. The Jewish people, instead of receiving Him as the Messiah, basically rejected Him and crucified Him. God raised Him up. And the problem is they did not accept Him as the Messiah. So, the Bible says, this Jewish story, God pressed the pause button. At the end of 69 weeks, 69 sevens, 483 years, he hit the pause button. And he basically said, okay, Jewish people, I'll be back to handle you later, okay? I'm going now into a time where this message has to go to the Gentiles, okay? That's us, okay? So for however long God decides, we are in the Gentile era, okay? There's still one more week that has been promised to the Jewish people, okay? That original promise was to the Jewish people and Jerusalem, 70 weeks. Okay, we're at the 69 and we're paused as far as they're concerned. So God basically says, I'll get back to you. I'm going to the Gentiles now. And we've been living in that era since then. Now remember the original prophecy. 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city. This is a prophecy about Jewish people and Jerusalem. Okay. So it says, to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for sin, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. So what God is saying is, look, I'm going to restore the Jewish people. I'm going to fix their sin. I'm going to pay for it. I'm going to restore the temple. I'm going to do all the things that I need to do for the promises I made to Abraham way back. Okay? Okay. That's going to happen. There's going to be a time when I turn my attention back to the Jewish people. But right now, I've pressed the pause button because we're going to the Gentiles. Does that make sense? Okay, so what happens is at the end of the 70th week, we know that all the sins of all the Jewish nation have been atoned for, and they have been determined righteous, and the holy city is now holy again, okay? So, during the last seven years, things are going to happen that restore the Jewish people and restore their relationship with God. Okay? Now that flies in direct contradiction to people who are teaching falsely that God left the Jewish people and doesn't care about them because they killed Jesus. Okay? That's a horrible theology, it's not even found in Scripture, and it's so unlike God it violates His very promise to Abraham. But the last week of this prophecy is delayed. It's delayed because the Jewish people rejected Jesus. That's the area we're in right now, the, the church age. It's an unspecified time, and it's between the end of the 69th week, which is when Jesus was in the temple, until it's time for the last seven years to occur. The church age will end with the rapture of the church. How will we know the church age is over? We won't be here. Okay? God's going to show up. And we're going to meet him in the clouds. At that point, the church age is done. The Gentiles that he went to reach have now all flown with him back to heaven. Okay? And we will have the marriage supper of the Lamb. All those kind of things are going to happen. That's how we'll know that the church age is over. Once the Antichrist signs a peace agreement with Israel, okay, what's going to happen is we're going to disappear, and then somebody's going to rise up who's going to be the Antichrist, remember the rider on the white horse, And he's going to bring peace, remember, first three and a half years of peace. And so he's going to sign a peace treaty with Israel. The day that's signed, Jesus will be back to fight the battle of Armageddon exactly seven years later. Okay? For that reason, his second return is not a surprise. It's expected. When you read about surprises of Jesus' return, they're talking about the rapture. Okay? So he's going to sign a peace agreement with Israel. Seven years later, Jesus is going to return, and he will defeat Satan at Armageddon. So we know that there's going to be another period of seven years. The last three and a half of those years, Jesus calls the Great Tribulation. The first three and a half years, Tribulation. Last three and a half years, Great Tribulation. Okay? Okay? In the end, Jesus will have restored all the Gentiles through the church age, all the Jewish people through the last seven years, and those who are Messianic Jews. And he will be their savior, and he will defeat Satan at Armageddon. That tribulation starts with the opening of the seven seals. Okay, as soon as he opens the first seal, the the white horse shows up, that's the Antichrist. We looked at that last week. In fact, we looked at the first six seals last week. So with that background we're ready to sort of look at chapter 7 because we've opened the sixth seal we haven't yet opened the seventh seal and John takes us on kind of an interlude for a moment and he tells us some things about this group of people remember the sixth seal was a great global earthquake it was massive the stars seemed to fall from the sky the moon turned blood red the Sun darkened every island and every mountain was moved The the earthquake had to be from the core of the earth, the, the oceans, everything's going crazy. People are freaking out. Remember that the kings of the earth were crying out to the rocks to save them. They recognized that it was a punishment from God. But instead of crying out to God, they cried out to the rocks. It didn't go so well for them. The rocks couldn't save them. And then in the middle of complete and total chaos on earth... The seventh seal. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth that no wind might blow on the earth or sea or against any tree. They go from an earthquake, people hiding in caves, everything going crazy, the whole thing's nuts, and all of a sudden, boom, total calm. Not a breath of wind. Nothing. That has got to be one of the most eerie experiences on earth. Dead silence. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice from the four angels who had been given power to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe from the sons of Israel. Now, he goes on then to list 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes. There will be 12,000 people from each tribe sealed by God before the Great Tribulation starts. Okay? All right. Well, that's interesting because we don't know who the 10 tribes are. God does. And he's telling us in the end times there will be Jewish people who don't even know they're Jewish who will receive the seal of God. They'll be converted during the Tribulation. And he is preparing that remnant, and he's protecting them. And we'll learn some things about them in a minute. But we have seen God's protective seal before. Ezekiel 9, 3-4. Now the glory of the Lord of God of Israel had gone up from the cherub, from which the, it rested with the threshold of the house, and called to a man clothed in linen, who was the writing case at his waist. And the Lord said to him, Pass through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of all the men who sigh and groan over the abominations that are committed in it. In other words, crazy things are happening in Jerusalem, but some people are really upset about it, and they're distraught about it. Go seal those people, because I'm about to go do some things down there, okay? You go protect those people. God's about to pass judgment in Jerusalem, and he tells Ezekiel about sealing those people on their foreheads. When God seals someone, he is making a unilateral promise, just like he made to Abraham. I'm putting my seal on you. We have a covenant. I will protect you. You have my stamp on you. One day in the future, you will be redeemed. But until then, my seal is on you because you're mine. And that seal, once it's given, is unconditional and unilateral, just like all of God's promises are to us. He's making a unilateral promise Jesus was sealed by the Father do not work for food that perishes but for food that endures to eternal life which the Son of Man will give to you for on him God the Father has set his seal so now before the trumpet judgments God seals another group of people Jewish people those who will represent the remnant, those who will be His witnesses to the Jewish nation. Because when this clock starts ticking again in the last seven years, the attention is on the Jewish people, okay? That's critical to understand. The Gentile period is over. The focus turns to saving Jewish people. So God sets aside 144,000 people who have His mark, who will be witnesses to the Jewish nation and to the rest of the world, okay? Now, since we don't know what happened to the ten tribes that got dispersed around the world, some people are going to be sealed and they didn't even know they were Jewish. Okay? Because many of those people went north into Europe, and it's quite possible that some of us in this room have actually a descendant from one of the ten tribes, we don't know. All the records in the temple were destroyed in AD 70, but God according to Revelation knows where the twelve tribes are, all twelve of them. And He's going to select 12,000 from each tribe. Now, 12,000 from each tribe, 144,000 people. Who are these people? Well, the Jehovah's Witnesses will tell you that it's them. What they'll tell you is that there's only 144,000 people who are going to be saved. And if you read the history of the Jehovah's Witness movement, at first it was 144,000 of us. And then when they got more than 144,000 people in their congregations, then they said, okay, it's a select group of 144,000. Okay. Now I will tell you that if I knew only 144,000 of us were getting up there, I wouldn't go around trying to recruit you by ringing your doorbell because I don't want to compete with you. Okay. But we're going to learn in some scripture in a minute that it is impossible to take that position from this scripture. Okay. And I'm going to show you why. Most Bible scholars regard the 144,000 as 144,000 converted Jews who have been protected by God, who are Israelites, Jewish people, and they will be witnesses for God during the seven year tribulation period. In Revelation 14, we learn more about these 144,000, and we'll get to that later, but let me just give you some highlights. They are called children of Israel. Their tribal affiliation is specific. They are known to belong by God to specific tribes of the uh, Israel nation. They are protected and triumphant through the period of God's wrath. And they will meet Jesus at Mount Zion when He returns. So these 144,000 who are sealed will not be harmed during the tribulation. And when Jesus comes back and puts His feet on the Mount of Olives, they will be there to witness it and to welcome Him. They are celibate men. Okay? Bible says they are celibate men. These 144,000. Revelation fourteen four, by the way. They are the beginning of what God calls a great harvest. So these 144,000 are the first fruit of a huge harvest to come. Not the total, the first fruits. Okay? They are marked with integrity and faithfulness, according to Revelation 14, 5. So this group of people... Can't possibly be what the Jehovah's Witnesses say or all those that are saved. And we'll see that again in a minute. Most people believe that these are really people, 144,000 of them. Uh, And this is the position that's taken by most, uh, most folks. Some, however, note that the word 12 is a number of completion. Remember, we talked about how numbers are important in the Bible. Three, seven, and 12 are numbers of completion. Okay, 12 tribes of Israel, 12 disciples. When Judas uh, betrayed Christ, they were adamant about having to have another person replace them. They couldn't have 11. They had to have 12. 12 is a number of completion. So some people have said that these 12,000 of 12 tribes represents the, all the Jewish people that will be saved figuratively. That it's the complete number of all the tribes and all the Jewish people. In Exodus 4, um, let's wait, I'm going to skip that. Um, Let me go to what Paul says in Romans 11. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of the mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Okay, so what Paul's saying is, look, we're in a time right now where the Jewish people have a partial hardness to Jesus. They're not going to receive him right now. And in this way all Israel will be saved, it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards to the Gospel, they are enemies for your sake. In other words, they are going to oppose the spreading of the Gospel. But as regards to election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. In other words, yes, they are going to resist the Gospel. You're going to go out and preach it, and they're going to say, Jesus isn't the Messiah. But their forefathers, Abraham, I gave a promise to, a unilateral, unconditional promise, okay? And what he's saying here is, I've made a commitment, a covenant with them for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. I'm not taking it back. I know they're opposing the gospel. I know they don't believe in Jesus right now, but I'm not giving up on them for just as you were at one time disobedient to God and now have received mercy because of their disobedience. So they too have been disobedient in order that they may have mercy shown and that they may also now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. So what God's saying is, look, I'm going to save the Jewish people. I haven't given up on them. I made a commitment to Abraham. I'm keeping that commitment. Yes, we're in the Gentile area. Yes, we're in the church era. We're in between the 69th and the 70th week, and we're going out to the Gentiles. But there's a day when I'm turning back, and I've sealed 144,000 witnesses for that time. They will be Messianic Jews who come to know Christ or know Christ during the tribulation, and I'm going to seal them, and they're going to be my witnesses, and they're going to be the first fruit of the Jewish harvest, okay? Okay. So, God's covenant is that the 70th seven, he would come to the nation of Israel and restore them. Now, whether he seals 144,000 exact people or a whole bunch more people, I don't know. But I do know that everyone who calls on his name will be saved. Revelation 7, 9, after this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all the tribes, the people, the languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. The diversity here is evident. He says people from all nations, all languages. Okay? That means when we get to heaven we will recognize people of different languages, different nations. Okay? He says they are all there. All nations, all languages, a diversity of people, they are all there at the throne. Okay? So we will keep some of that as we head into heaven. And the gospel of the kingdom according to Matthew will be proclaimed to the whole world as a testimony to all the nations and then the end will come, Jesus says. So, all the nations have received this message and many of them believed and now they're in heaven worshiping God. And because John knew that somehow they came from different nations and peoples and tribes and tongues that we know that there are going to be differences among people in heaven. We won't all be the same, we're going to have some individual characteristics. Now they're there with palm branches and palm branches are a sign of victory. It shows a great multitude celebrates a great victory white robes suggest righteousness they worship God for their salvation they recognize that God is the source of their salvation and that it's not something they earned it's something God gave to them Sometimes on earth, we take for granted our salvation. These people in heaven are falling on their faces saying, you saved us. We know we don't deserve to be here. We worship you because you saved us. A great multitude, John says, is worshiping God. And all of the others are joining in in praise. Remember the angels that we couldn't count, the tens of thousands of thousands of angels. They're all at the throne. They're all singing. Now we have this multitude of people that's too numerous to count. They're falling on their faces saying, amen, amen. God, you are are our savior. You're our power. You're everything. And then one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? And I had said to him, sir, you know, in other words, I have no idea who is it. And I said to him, sir, you know, and he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Okay. This is not the Gentile church. This is the harvest of Jewish people. The 144,000 have gone out into the world. And during the great tribulation, Jews and Gentiles will come to know Christ. And there's so many of them that they can't even count. And every one of them knows they've been saved. Remember the martyrs that were under the throne that came out during the tribulation. These are people who come during the tribulation, which tells you that there's far more than 144,000 people who are gonna be saved. There are so many that are gonna be saved during the tribulation, during the focus on the Jewish nation, that John can't even count them. There's so many of them. And they're washed by the blood of the lamb. I think we underestimate what goes on in heaven sometimes. Revelation 7.15, Therefore they are before the throne of God, and they serve Him day and night in the temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter Him with His presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne, again John describing this Trinity, the Lamb in the midst of the throne, the Father on the throne, the Holy Spirit there will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Think about what heaven must sound like. I mean, these guys are praising God. They're singing, they're worshiping. Remember we talked last week about how we picture heaven will be a quiet place. These people are going berserk. I mean they are falling on their face they're going crazy they're worshiping God they're singing out with a loud voice millions of millions of them too many to count angels tens of tens of thousands the the elders 24 of them on their faces it's a noisy place and then in heaven just like on earth silence when the lamb opened the seventh seal there was silence in heaven for about half an hour It's as if all of creation, heaven and earth, stopped and held their breath for what was getting ready to come. It is a sober, awestruck silence. That yes, we are here. Yes, Jesus has saved us. Yes, we are worshiping him, but oh my God, we know what's getting ready to happen. We know what's gonna happen on earth. There are judgments that must come. The seven seals are off, and now the scroll's gonna be open, and it's gonna get worse. And it's as if all of creation just goes, <gasps> and there's a pause. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and the seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of the saints and the golden altar before the throne and the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the incense and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it to earth. And there were peals of thunder and rumblings and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. And now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. In the Old Testament, trumpets... Sounded the alarm for war. They were designed to throw the enemy into a panic They called the assembly of God's people together and the last trumpet told them the war was over These seven trumpets will sound as Battle alarms for the great tribulation Incense is symbolic of the prayers of the people rising to God one job of the priest in the temple was to constantly keep incense burning at the altar of incense because it represented the prayers of the people rising to God. And every morning and every evening, the priest would go to the altar of incense and add incense, and the people recognized that was their prayer going to God. And what we see here is that that prayer is now drifting to the actual real temple, in the real Holy of Holies, in the real place of God, at the throne of God in heaven. The prayers of the saints are in bowls, and they're rising up, and that's what we see. So the next time you pray, think about those places in heaven. The idea is that incense is precious and pleasant, and it drifts to heaven. So here, before anything happens, before the opening of the seventh seal, the prayers of God's people come before the Lord. And then we hear that those prayers are hurled out. There, there's this huge thing that happens. And it sounds like meteors are thrown to earth from the throne of God, the coals of God. The angel throws them to earth. And you can picture meteors coming to earth and it says there's a big earthquake, another earthquake. They just had one. Now another earthquake's hits. The fire of the altar of heaven is thrown down to heaven. A judgment is getting ready to come and it says it brought noises and thunderings and lightnings and an earthquake so in Revelation 7 we see God sealing those who trust him he places his name his seal on their foreheads to protect them from a judgment to come we're gonna learn later that the seal God puts on people is on their foreheads and their right hand the Jewish people keep scriptures on their right hand and they keep scriptures on their forehead We will see that the Antichrist, when he develops his mark, will mock that and put the mark on the forehead or on the right hand, okay? We're going to see that later when the Antichrist develops his seal. But for now, these people are sealed by God on their foreheads to protect them from the judgment to come. This reminds us of the Israelites who were covered by the blood of the Lamb at the first Passover, Judgment is coming. If you trust in the blood of the lamb, you will you will not have judgment. Right. So think about it. These hundred and forty four thousand, whichever population of Jewish people they are, are protected by God. They are sealed. They are untouchable. God has put His mark on them. You're mine. I'm protecting you. Nothing will happen to you. No matter how bad your life gets, no matter how horrible things get around you, you are mine, I am in control, I am surrounding you, and you can trust me because it's a unilateral, unconditional covenant that I made with you just like I made with Abraham and David. Can you imagine what that must feel like? I mean, to know that God himself has sealed you and put you on mission and will protect you and guard you and when the time is right, take you to heaven. You don't have to imagine it. You're already sealed. Those who have accepted Jesus are sealed with the promise of redemption to come on the day of judgment. We're sealed with the Holy Spirit. God himself has reached down into our lives and put his hand on our forehead and given us the Holy Spirit. We are sealed. We are his child. He has personally stamped us right now in this place. The problem is we don't live like it. That's the problem. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit as a down payment of our redemption to come. We can walk through life with a seal that blows away the Brad Boyer swimming seal. I mean, you think you can get some places with the Brad Boyer swimming seal. You just take the Holy Spirit where you're going and watch what happens. Doors will open. Things will happen. God will show up. And you will know that you're a child of the living God living in difficult times, but with a promise of redemption to come. Second Corinthians 1: 121, "And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us, and who has also put His seal on us and given us His spirit in our hearts as a guarantee." Ephesians 1:12 so that we who were first to hope in Christ might be the praise of his glory, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is a guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Second Timothy 2, but God's firm foundation stands hearing, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Ephesians 4. Let no corrupt talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up as it fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. We have been sealed by God. Yeah, there's going to be 144,000 people that get the seal of God on their head. We already have it. We've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. We have been declared as God's child. We have been reborn as spiritual beings. We are children of the living God. He has a purpose and plan in our life. He will carry out that purpose and plan in our life. He is going to perhaps have all kinds of things happen in our lives and around our lives, but we are sealed for His purposes and His plan. They can't hurt us. They can't touch us. Okay? We will go through difficulty, Jesus says, on earth. But he says, don't give up. I have overcome. And so can you. We overcome through the Spirit of God. Okay? So it's important for us periodically to stop and remember that we have been sealed by God for times such as these. As we get into the end times, we are sealed for this exact moment to go through these tribulations, to go through these processes that lead up to the tribulation. We know we're in end times. We know that we're supposed to be here. We know we're empowered with the Holy Spirit. And we know that it is through the Holy Spirit that people come to salvation. So we are sealed by God. Every once in a while God says, you should stop and remember that. One of the ways we remember that we are sealed by a living God, that we are His children is to celebrate communion. Every time we celebrate communion, we remember who we are, we remember who he is, and we remember what he's done for us. Luke twenty two fourteen, 14. And when the hour came, he reclined at the table, and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Think about that statement, just it'll take you a long places. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took the cup, which he'd given thanks. And he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, after the cup, after they had eaten, he said, The cup that is poured out for you is a new covenant in my blood. You see, the same covenant he made with Abraham and David, he's made with you. It's unilateral. It's unconditional. You are saved. You have his stamp on you. You have been reborn spiritually. His covenant is promised no matter what you do. He has sealed you. And you, as a result of that, celebrate communion and recognize you've been sealed by the Holy God. So as you take communion tonight... I want you to spend some time thinking about how grateful you are that you've already been sealed. I want you to think about the Jewish people who will come to know Christ, who will be at the altar recognizing their savior and praising God for salvation. You're already sealed. You're already protected from the punishment of your sins. You're already victorious over death and you've been redeemed through Christ. And with that heart, we celebrate communion. Let me pray. God, I thank you that you have sealed us. I thank you that you are going to make sure that the Jewish nation comes back. I thank you, God, that you brought the message to the entire world, including us, including everyone in this room. I pray, God, that everyone in this room has surrendered to you and knows that they are sealed by the living God. God, I pray right now you just move in this room. May your Holy Spirit fall on this place and remind us of how grateful we are and how we too will be on our faces in front of a holy throne thanking God for our salvation and at the same time taking a gasp of air when we recognize what's going to happen. So we just love you and we thank you and we ask it in Jesus' name.